Amen. Thank you, Austin. Thank you, worship team. Good morning, church. Uh, great to see you this morning. My name is Jeff Skipper, one of the pastors here. I'm so excited uh, to be back with you and uh, bringing the word this morning um, as we continue our series through the book of 1 John. And uh, if you know, the author, uh, his name is John. Uh, he also wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he wrote the book of Revelation. He was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He's described as the one whom Jesus loved in the Bible. So I can't think of many people closer to Jesus than John, which makes me want to lean in to, to anything he has to say. Uh, and if you've been with us, you know the main thrust of the book of 1 John is that he's giving us a series of tests to help us examine ourselves to know, uh, you know, are we part of the real thing, genuine, authentic Christianity, or are we just going through the motions? So I appreciate that. He doesn't want us to be presumptuous. At the same time, he writes over and over again, I write so that you may know that you're in God's love. He doesn't want us to be presumptuous, but he doesn't want us to be uncertain either. And he gives three main tests, and these are in no particular order in the book. The first, one of the tests is he gives a moral test. Like, do you follow him in obeying his commands? Do you walk as he called you to walk? Secondly, we could probably call it a social test. Do you love others? And do you love the Lord? And finally, uh, there's a doctrinal test. What do you believe? Specifically, what do you believe about Jesus? And we're going to look at that today. And John says this is vitally important. Pastor Kevin DeYoung said, Christianity is so much more than getting your doctrine right, but it's not less than that either. Uh, my first son, many of you know, was born very, very premature. He was in the NICU for over 100 days with a lot of complications. So many people supported us and prayed for us through that process. Uh, but I remember one person uh, telling us uh, that the reason our son was in that state was because we didn't have enough faith. Um, and that could have sent us spiraling, right? Because, you know, some people think when suffering comes, like, what, what am I doing wrong? Why is God punishing me? Thankfully, we were discerning enough to know that is like garbage doctrine. <laughs> it, it's not true. So it didn't, it didn't phase us, right? Uh, we know uh, God uses trials to refine us that we live in a fallen world, and, and he showed us great mercy through that process. Uh, I just say that to say doctrine matters. Theology matters. And so many are deceived and they're hurt by false teaching. And that particular stream I'm referring to is sometimes called the Word of Faith Movement, health, wealth, prosperity messages uh, that ruins lives. There's a great documentary on Netflix called American Gospel. You can check out too uh, if, you're, if you're interested. Uh, there's a great book by Ross Douthat. He's a New York Times columnist. Uh, he wrote a book called Bad Religion. And he said this, America's problem isn't too much religion or too little of it. It's bad religion. It's the slow motion collapse of traditional Christianity and the rise of a variety of destructive pseudo-Christianities in its place. And the reality is that's not just America's problem. That's been around since the beginning. Even since the first century. And John knows that. There's false gospels running around. He knows there's a lot of junk. There's a lot of lies vying for our attention and our allegiance. And so John's going to give us a theological standard or test to help us, kind of sums it up in chapter 4, verse 6, to, so that we might know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So we might know our doctrine, be discerning, and as Jude says, we might keep ourselves in the love of God. 
So I'm going to read a couple passages from 1 John this morning in your worship folder on the screen from chapter 2 and chapter 4 if you'll follow along, okay? Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Chapter 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them, but we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us, and by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is God's word. I'm going to look at two points this morning, uh, defining orthodoxy and then the limits of orthodoxy. Now, to begin, although I th- when I think of 1 John, I think of the love book. You know, God is love, and we love because he first loved us, and it's just like this feel-good book, but all is not well in the churches that he's writing to. Maybe you just picked up on that. Chapter 2, verse 18, he said there's many antichrists that are out there. Chapter 4, verse 1, there's a lot of false teachers leading people astray. In verse 19, actually it says they've recently left. And specifically, the false teaching he's he's referring to uh, concerns the nature of Jesus. Some are denying that Jesus is the Messiah. Look at chapter 4, verse 2, every spirit that confesses Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that doesn't confess Jesus is not from God. He does the same thing in 2 John 1.7. He throws in that phrase, in the flesh. Did you catch that? It reminds me of how the book started. Uh, John says, that which was from the beginning, which we have seen, which we have heard, which we've touched with our hands, was made manifest, which I've always thought, that seems like weird he says all that. Unless you know what he's combating. From the start, John's at pains to emphasize the physicality of Jesus. And if you know church history, one of the earliest heresies in the church was called docetism, which is related to Gnosticism, which said everything physical is kind of tainted and bad, but, you know, so therefore everything spiritual is pure and good. And docetism said that Jesus wasn't fully human, but he only appeared to be. You with me? He was like this divine emanation. Now imagine this comes up in the early church, and somebody says, hey, uh, you know, Brother Randy in his Sunday school class is teaching that Jesus was, you know, he didn't really come in the flesh. He wasn't there when Thomas put his hand in his side. He wasn't around when we sat down and ate with him and stuff. So, like, is this a big deal or not? To which the leaders would have said, well, let's open the Westminster Confession, turn to chapter 8, look on the nature of Jesus, and that'll clear it up. Or grab your ESV study Bible and look in the notes. Or let's just listen to a Tim Keller sermon, right? Let's clear this thing up. Of course not, right? Like, none of those things existed. So how do they deal with this? John is writing probably in the 90s. Hard for us to understand. This is 60 years after Jesus, give or take. 
It's only 30 years after Paul. The new 27 books of the New Testament wouldn't be compiled for another 100 years or so. Okay, so is it that easy to clear this up? Is this heresy? Is this not? Is this legit or is this not? There's no what we might call developed Christology. Christology, fancy word for like unified positions of the church on the nature and person and role of Jesus. They're kind of still figuring things out. I want us to incarnate in that first century the best we can. So here's John, the apostle, being carried along by the Holy Spirit, writing scripture, and he's laying out some Christology himself. Who is, who is Jesus? Like, he has to decide, is this teaching going around a big deal, or is it not? Is it a deal breaker? Uh, we're selling our home, and the inspection uh, happened recently, and so the buyers sent us a list of things that needed to be fixed. And so Marissa and I had to sit down and decide, what do we do? Okay, there's a live wire hanging on the back porch where children walk by. I should probably fix that. True story. Um, you know, there's leaks in, in, in the master bedroom sink, and they're all, you know, uh, getting rusted and everything. Okay, I'll fix those things, sure. But a new garage door? Eh. They want a new AC? Ah, that's where I got to draw the line, <laughs> right? And that's what John's doing. John is drawing a line. And here he says, too far. Too much. Look at chapter 2, verse 22. Who is the liar? This is the same word John uses in his gospel in chapter 8 that Jesus uses of the devil. Liar. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, that he's God in the flesh, that he's the Messiah? That's the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Uh, you always know the skippers are at Grove Roots when you hear the Jenga Tower slam down. The big block Jenga tower. You know, everyone gets quiet. It's like the Saved by the Bell timeout skirt moment. And everyone stares at us. Uh, because my kids, all kids, I think, love going for the bottom block on the Jenga set. They, they can't resist it. And John is saying here, the bottom block of the Jenga tower of Christianity is who you confess Jesus to be. Right? You can't have all the blocks on top of that. Forgiveness, eternal life, all things being made right one day without that bottom block. Jesus asked Peter famously, who do you say that I am? And he asked every one of us the same question. Because that's the heart of, of right doctrine starts there. Who do you say that Jesus is? And this is why this teaching, this heresy is a big deal to John. Because think it out logically. If Jesus didn't really come in the flesh... He wasn't fully human, then he couldn't really succeed in obeying God in all the places where we failed for our righteousness. Not really. And he couldn't really take our place in death for our sins so that we might be forgiven. And he didn't really rise bodily from the grave to conquer death. And if that's the case, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, don't you hear the Jenga tower falling down? We might as well close up shop and go home because we have no hope. But as we know, Hebrews 2, 14 says, he was made like us in every way. Even taken on flesh and blood, John says in chapter 1 of his gospel, the word was made what? Flesh. And dwelt among us so that he could stand in the gap for us and we can stand righteous before the Father. So John knows all of this is at stake. This is not a small issue. It's worth dividing over. And as time goes on, the church develops what we know as orthodoxy which means right worship or right doctrine. So they had these councils. 
You can see the first one in Acts 15 where all the bishops and leaders of the church got together and they debated and agreed upon what is like vital, right Christian doctrine to protect the church from false teachings because false teachings kept popping up and it was divisive. So they came together and they said, hey, what, what are our main tenets? They had seven of these early ecumenical councils. What are our non-negotiables, guys? Let's get on the same page here. And they formulated statements of belief. One of the earliest ones in 325 was the Nicene Creed. You can go look that up. What are our main things? So it's funny, heresies actually help the church get their act together. <laughs> All of the early church councils were in response to false teachings. So it helped them get together. Guys, we gotta get our doctrine together. Dude, let's get on the same page. Last week, we stood up and before communion, what did we recite? The Apostles' Creed. That's a fourth century document. It's a summary of the Christian faith. And if you notice, it's brief and it's broad. It only hits the big stuff. The Trinity, the person and work of Jesus, the church, judgment, eternal life. Like stuff we can all probably agree on. It doesn't get in the weeds, if you notice. And C.S. Lewis uh, in Mere Christianity, his book give, gives a helpful picture here. He says, Christianity is like a really big house. And when you walk in the house, there's one main hallway, kind of like this aisle right here. And off the hallway, there are many rooms. And each room looks a little different. Like one room might have a couch and a fireplace and a rug. Another room might have three chairs and incense burning. And that's fine. All of the rooms can look a little different. But what all of the rooms have in common are the main hallway. And he said that main hallway are the main orthodox tenets of Christianity that we've agreed upon throughout the centuries. So the creeds are very inclusive. It's a big tent. There's some wiggle room in there. Notice, when we recite the creed, we don't stand up and say, I believe in infant baptism. We don't say, I believe there might be a rapture, might not. This is my stance on that. We don't say that stuff, right? Those aren't tests of orthodoxy. We only recite the vitals, things that we don't budge on. Again, each room may look a little different, but you can't deny those in the main hallway and still live in the house because that's Christianity. If you notice our vows when we do membership, they're broad too. We got five questions. You know you're a sinner. Jesus is the only way. He's your savior. It leaves room for us to have fellowship with one another and then still disagree on lesser issues. Which you see, that's why... Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses have never been considered to be in the house because they have unorthodox, unorthodox views about the Trinity and the nature of Jesus. They deny some of the main things. My boys found my tape measure the other day, which, by the way, apparently is way more entertaining than any toy I could ever buy them. And they're measuring everything in the house, the TV, the rugs, me. And historically, the church has called orthodoxy our rule of faith. It's our measuring stick. Like my boys with the tape measure. We use it as a standard to see if other teachings measure up. So John says in chapter 4, verse 1, you see there, he said, test everything. Here's the rule. Do they confess Jesus as the Christ? Because if not, they don't even have the Father. Like the cashier at the grocery store scribbles on your $100 bill and holds it up to the light. He says, go, go around doing that. If they, if they say that salvation is by what you do, if it depends upon whether you're just like a really good moral person and not the free grace of God in Christ, then throw it out. It doesn't measure up. 
If they say, it doesn't really matter what you believe, it's not the object of your faith, it's just kind of like, is it genuine or not? Relativism, throw it out. It doesn't measure up. Again, he's saying there's a lot of junk out there vying for our allegiance, and it looks good and it sounds good, but don't be spiritually gullible. Like, have a theological backbone. Another way he says it, look in chapter 2, verse 24. I love this. He says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. In other words, hey, stick to the old roads. If it was like founded in the last 200 years, like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and the Church of Scientology, it's like the comedian said, here's your sign. Like it's probably not historic Christian orthodoxy. This one's free. If it's on TV, at least be skeptical, okay? Uh, One pastor, Burke Parsons, said this. He said, saying you're a new kind of Christian with a new kind of Christianity is basically saying you're an old kind of heretic. Martin Luther, he's he's a good example of knowing when it's time to draw a line for the sake of the gospel, right? He stood in front of the Catholic Church, the gospel being by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not works. He refused to take back his teachings. He wouldn't recant. His famous line when he's standing in front of all these people, he said, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. And the Protestant Reformation takes off. And John is saying, you've got to have positions like that, like the gospel in your main things. Do you have things where you say, here I stand? Paul wrote to young Timothy, and he said, for I know whom I have believed. Can you say that? Do you have those places? But listen, if everything is a Luther moment for you, right? The mode of baptism, end times, specific of Reformed theology or whatnot, and you're going around just like ruling people out of the faith all over the place for that stuff. If everything's a hill to die on, that might be a flashing red light on the dashboard of spiritual immaturity or or just you're young, right? Or, Or just pride. It's true of a lot of Christians when they're new to the faith and young, there's no gray. They can't distinguish between primary and secondary issues. Right? Things to hold tightly, things to hold, but hold them with an open hand. Right? They ask you to coffee just to tell you how wrong they are, or you are, on all of these things. Like one test of having true Christianity is if you have the right doctrine. But here's the deal. The test of how right your doctrine really is, is how does it express itself? How does it lead you to treat and interact with people different than you, who disagree with you on some of these issues? I'm learning as a husband, I can be right and totally wrong at the same time. I can logic my way through an argument. I can replay it out loud. This is what really happened, right? Defend myself. And I might be right on a lot of the specifics, and yet I'm a jerk the entire time. (laughs) Jesus told the Pharisees, you search the scriptures and you think you find life in them. And they knew their Bibles well. They had the right answers in many ways understand me they were the most most orthodox religious leaders of the day and yet jesus said you've got it all kind of right you know your bibles on all this and yet you still don't get it you've t- you're totally missing it because i'm the goal if the right truths don't lead to life with me and being transformed in your heart and your life you're still lost and you're actually more lost because you don't know that you don't know And it's tragic that often those who are most concerned with having the right theology and being orthodox have the reputation of being the most self-righteous, harsh, and proud because their righteousness is in being right and not in the grace of Jesus. And there's a difference. 
Pastor Scott Saul said, the more biblically conservative our theology is, the more liberal we'll be in how and who we love. And isn't that what we see with Jesus? Like he said, not one dot of the law would budge. He was very narrow doctrinally. And yet, he was the most inclusive relationally. Always meeting people where they're at, didn't really care what camp they came from. So the Bible's clear, false teaching can't be tolerated. It must not be tolerated. And at the same time, if your orthodoxy leads you to rule more and more and more people out to where just you and your little camp are left, you might be missing it. If you can't worship and and take communion and do community group with people that you deeply disagree with on secondary issues while still rallying around Jesus, you might be missing it. If you have no room for being ecumenical and connected to other rooms in the house who adhere to the main hallway, check your orthodoxy again. Uh, In church history, a good example of this is uh, George Whitfield and John Wesley. They're two very different camps theologically. One Calvinist, one Arminian. They had deep disagreements between the two. And reportedly, John Wesley was once asked, do you think you'll see George Whitfield in heaven? And he said, no. (laughs) And the reporter was like, oh, okay, well, um, you know, I kind of expected that. And he said, no, 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 don't misunderstand me. He said, George Whitfield will be so close to the throne of Jesus, a guy like me, I'll be so far in the back, I'll never even see him. From two different worlds on these secondary issues. Paul said, you can have all the knowledge you want, but if you don't have love, it's worthless. And I I believe there will be many theologically orthodox professing people who aren't in heaven because the truths, the intellectual truths of the gospel never really hit the concrete of their heart and their life. Is faith for you simply giving mental assent to truth propositions? Do you just enjoy studying doctrine and theology? Or does that lead you to a love for Jesus as as your Savior and you rolling your heart and your life over to him in every way and the Holy Spirit transforming you? Will your cry before the God be, Lord, Lord, wasn't I orthodox? Or will it be, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner? And I'm by no means downplaying the importance of right doctrine. But I am warning that if we're not careful, we can locate our righteousness in our theological precision and our camp instead of Jesus, and it'll make us graceless and proud. And I think one thing that'll help us live that way, like holding firm to what we know, our main things, but wielding that truth humbly and lovingly is realizing in the big scheme of things how little we actually do know. A couple weeks ago, we got away to visit Marissa's family in Texas, and uh, we, we, just us two got away to tube down the river, just the lazy, uh, lazy river there. And we got on the water, and first I said, hi, how are you? My name's Jeff. feel like I haven't seen you in forever, uh, because we were no kids. And my kids are here. I love you guys. Just want to shout out real quick. Uh, but I spent the next hour on the river asking her questions. It just kind of led to that, about her story, when she was a kid, her family, And before we knew it, we got to the dock where we were getting off, and I was just getting started. And after being married for 12 years and knowing her like 18 years, you would think I've asked all my questions now. (laughs) Like I kind of know her fully now. But yeah, I'm learning I've barely scratched the surface because she's made in the image of God. And we're all fearfully and wonderfully made, and there are depths upon depths to us. What I do know of her, and many of you I know truly, but I don't know you fully. And if that's true of us, human to human, how much more for us to God, right? Last week, my kids were arguing at dinner, and one of them said, 
you think you know everything. Well, you don't know everything about God. And it was like this ultimate mic drop moment. The other kid was like, oh, well, excuse me. Well, you know, I never claimed to, but whatever. Um, you know, John Calvin said, uh, the scriptures are like God speaking baby talk to us. Goo goo ga ga. Right? Because that's all we can handle. <laughs> Even our most nuanced, complex, deep theological categories are goo goo ga ga. Baby talk. We know God truly, what we do know of him. Uh, John 1 says, Christ has made him known. We know what God is like, but we don't know him exhaustively. Paul said, uh, right now, it's like we see eternal things through a foggy window. We can make out enough for what we need to know now, but one day we'll see clearly and we will know fully, just like we're already fully known, amen? And because of that limited knowledge, we should hold it very humbly, not as know-it-alls, not as theological graduates. Knowing God is like climbing mountains. You get to the top of one mountain and you realize there's an entire another range to climb. And it just goes on and on. We read earlier, Job, what did Job say? He went round and round theologically with his friends and even God. And he said, we're just touching the outskirts of his ways. We just hear a whisper of him. And because of this, orthodoxy is comfortable with mystery. And this is actually what has distinguished orthodoxy from heresy throughout history. It's a commitment to mystery and, and paradox. Ross Duthaut said this in that same book. He said, Christian heresies almost all have in common a desire to resolve Christianity's contradictions, to untie its knotty paradoxes and produce a cleaner, more coherent faith, one that just goes down easy, right? No gray areas. But you see, the, the church has had opportunities to clear it up. The early church councils could have made this so easy for us. But they didn't. They left it as it is. Is Jesus divine or human? Is God three or one? Is he totally sovereign or do we have like a will? Is the world corrupt or is it good? Is the kingdom to be lived out in this world or are we waiting on it to come? Are we saved or are we being saved? Is God a jealous judge or is he compassionate and merciful? Are we saved by faith alone or is faith without works dead? This is like when you ask me, are you moody or hungry? Yes, right? This is not an either or answer. It's both and. All of these things. The Bible says God's revealed what we need to know, but Deuteronomy 29, 29, there are secret things that belong to the Lord. John Frame was a professor many of us who went to RTS had. He's one of the most revered theologians of our day, really. And he wrote an article last week, or a couple weeks ago, on the Gospel Coalition. And uh, the title of the article was, Upon Turning 80, I'm More Aware of Mystery. This is a man who's written thick, huge volumes of complex, nuanced, deep theology that I have to read one paragraph eight times. And he said this, as I get older... I'm less and less impressed by people, including theologians, who think they have everything figured out. Theologians readily confess God's incomprehensibility as a doctrinal point, but often they go on from there to write as if, if they had that ultimate and final knowledge that belongs to God alone. And I believe that's what Paul bumped up against in Romans 11. After he wrote 11 chapters of deep theology, he hit what we call his doxology. He hit a wall and he embraced the mystery of God. 
He's kind of like, I've kind of reached my limits here, guys. He said, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And I think the more mature we get in the faith, the more orthodox we become, the less concerned we become with having all the right answers, especially on those secondary issues, and we hold a lot of that with an open hand, and the more concerned we get with our few main things, knowing and clinging to Jesus as our Savior. Karl Barth was another theologian, wrote over 10,000 pages of theology, and near the end of his life, he was asked, uh, out of all of your extensive studies, how would, what would you sum it all up as? And this deep-thinking theologian said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's what I got. This is a call to hold firm to the faith once delivered to the saints, the apostolic faith of orthodoxy. It's a call to get off the milk and grow in our knowledge of the truth, to be discerning, and yet at the same time, remember, unless we become like children, we'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. The call, the test, is to abide. In Jesus as our Lord. And the good news is that promise in chapter 2, verse 25. This is the promise he made to us, eternal life. Amen. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book of 1 John and just really putting ourselves in that situation. It's kind of comforting in some ways that 2,000 years later, things aren't totally different. Uh, this this passage has a lot to speak to us. Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would fill us with knowledge that we might be able to discern truth from error, uh, but also we would enter that process from a place of gospel humility. And we would be a people who show love and grace and kindness as we seek to know you more. Lord, this isn't a call to stop seeking. We continue to seek and to seek you, but we long for that day when we might see Jesus face to face and we might know you fully. Lord, be glorified, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So as we go, uh, we seek to be a people of both truth and grace. I hope that's what you heard this morning. And just know as we seek him, as we look to him, he goes with us, the one who is full of truth and grace, Jesus Christ, God in us, the Holy Spirit with us. So receive this benediction if you're looking to him in faith. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in God's peace.